This, the podcast that reads the internet so you don't have to. My name is Mike, I'll be your host, and in this first episode of the podcast, I'd like to take a brief moment to explain exactly what we're doing here. So this is predicated on the idea that none of us has enough time to read everything on the internet that we want to or that we feel we need to. This was born out of my own inability to get through all the articles piling up in my RSS reader and in my Save for Later apps. I decided that the main reason that I wasn't reading was that I couldn't simultaneously read and do other things. I was literally too busy to read, but I realized that podcasts were a media format that allowed or encouraged multitasking. So I'm hoping that by putting the internet's most important reading into podcast form, we're solving that problem. So if you're on board with this, stay tuned, because in this first episode we've got a mishmash of stories about all different types of media. Since the podcast is premiering today on International Women's Day, I figured we should kick things off with a story about girls learning to code and taking on discrimination in the games industry. There's no known antidote to the toxicity of Gamergate, but one good way to recuperate is by directing your attention to the teenage creators behind a game called Tampon Run. Sophie Hauser, 17, and Andrea Gonzalez, 16, met during a summer program run by the nonprofit Girls Who Code. For their final project, the New York City high school students built a game to try to destigmatize menstruation by letting players shoot tampons, not guns, at their enemies. The game brought so much attention to its precocious creators and the taboo subject that the pair is launching a new and improved mobile version in the Apple App Store. Not convinced getting your period is still that taboo? Try walking through your office carrying a tampon in plain sight. Stop and chat with a male colleague on your way to the restroom while you're at it. Then imagine the middle school version of that exchange. Something most women get for a majority of their lives is embarrassing, crude, and shameful, Hauser explained in a TEDx talk about gender and tech from December. But the duo's equality agenda doesn't end there. After launching Tampon Run, Hauser and Gonzalez were named finalists at a Stanford hackathon for a game called Catcall Run. In that rapidly strung together version, the player flings tools of empowerment like pencils, computers, and notebooks at oncoming catcallers, who then switch over into graduation garb because they've been educated, Hauser told The Verge. In fact, a shared interest in women's issues is what brought the pair together. When it came time to find a partner for the final project at Girls Who Code, quote, I was in the social activist corner and Andy was in the art corner, said Hauser. Gonzalez pitched a project about the hypersexualization of women in gaming, and Hauser made a beeline for Gonzalez because she loved the idea of using code as a creative tool for activism. They eventually settled on Tampon Run, an old school 8 bit online game. In it, the girl character throws tampons to destroy her enemies, who will confiscate the tampons if she lets them pass by. The notion of weaponized tampons is a reference to a 2013 incident where Texas state troopers confiscated tampons as potential projectiles, but not guns, from visitors who were trying to get inside the Texas state capitol to observe a controversial vote on abortion restrictions. The online version of Tampon Run is simple, literal, and lighthearted, but that's what they were able to do with limited training and time. The iOS version of Tampon Run gets more challenging over time and includes a flying enemy and leaderboard. In their TEDx talk, Hauser and Gonzalez said their larger goal was to encourage more girls to experiment with coding. I don't think a guy would have made Tampon Run, and I don't think Andy or I would have made it if we were in a co-ed computer camp, Hauser told the crowd, lighting up when she described how great it felt to get the character to jump after two frustrating days of coding. Continually overcoming those difficulties is what makes you feel successful, she explained. 
The iOS version of the game was built with help from Pivotal Labs, which volunteered its expertise pro bono for seven weeks. Pivotal, a development consultancy, typically works on projects for clients like Twitter, Groupon, and Best Buy. Hauser readily admits that she and Gonzalez have caught some lucky breaks. For example, they were introduced to Pivotal through investor and entrepreneur Nihal Mehta, the husband of Girls Who Code founder and CEO Reshma Saujani. Mehta is a member of the nonprofit's Brain Trust. Hauser thought they were going to Pivotal for a scoping session. The girls answered questions about what they wanted to build and how long that would take. We couldn't be at Pivotal all day. High school, Hauser said, with what sounded like a shrug. Pivotal decided to offer up a dedicated team for seven weeks. In a statement, Catherine McGarvey, NYC office director at Pivotal Labs, said, Pivotal values diversity and enjoyed supporting an initiative that fosters inclusiveness in the tech industry. All the good-intentioned attention hasn't yet translated into traffic for the game, which has had 232,000 unique visitors since it launched last September. Hauser said the numbers were surprisingly low based on the media coverage. They've been featured everywhere from Fast Company to Teen Vogue. Perhaps, she said, people were sharing the news articles and maybe not clicking and playing the game. If the app doesn't get traction, there's a chance a book will fare better. Hauser and Gonzalez are talking to agents about writing something that would encourage girls to code. Hauser, who only learned to code this past summer, is committed to majoring in computer science. She and Gonzalez pay close attention to the gender gap in the tech industry, and have been carefully observing women harassed by Gamergate. It's definitely scary, and we were very lucky, she said, that Tampon Run has only received some hate mail from people who were anti-gun control, because we had a little message about violence in video games. Watching Gamergate unfold was horrible to see and hear about, said Hauser. But it strangely made me want to be here more. I want to stand here like a woman. I want to hold my ground. Teenage Coders Behind Tampon Run Take Their Feminist Game to the App Store was written by Natasha Tiku and was originally published on TheVerge.com on February 3rd, 2015. We're going to stick with the theme of video games for a moment to take a brief look into the deeper meanings behind a character who is perhaps Nintendo's most inexplicable and controversial. Waluigi is the ultimate example of the individual shaped by the signifier. Waluigi is a man seen only in mirror images, lost in a hall of mirrors. He is a reflection of a reflection of a reflection. You start with Mario, the wholesome, all-Italian plumbing Superman. You reflect him to create Luigi, the same thing, but slightly less. You invert Mario to create Wario. Mario turned septic and libertarian. Then you reflect the inversion in the reflection. You create a being who can only exist in reference to others. Waluigi is the true nowhere man. Without the other characters he reflects, inverts, and parodies, he has no reason to exist. Waluigi's identity only comes from what and who he isn't. Without a wider frame of reference, he is nothing. He is not his own man. In a world where our identities are shaped by our warped relationships to brands and commerce, we are all Waluigi. That was I, We, Waluigi, a postmodern analysis of Waluigi. It was written by Frank Ribery and originally appeared in a larger piece titled Critical Perspectives on Waluigi, which was originally published on The Empty Page, which can be found at theemptypage.wordpress.com. From the world of games, we move to the world of film and Angela Watercutter at Wired, who wrote about what ended up being this year's best picture and what, admittedly, was my favorite film of 2014. 
Superhero movies have that name for a reason. They feature people who win, who conquer, who use their super strength to do super things and save days. Birdman is about the rest of us, the schmucks who don't have power or who had it and lost it and are now wondering if we're relevant at all. And because of all that, it rises above. In Alejandro Iñárritu's newest film, Michael Keaton plays Riggin Thompson, an actor in the third act of his career. Riggin once donned a cowl on the big screen as the hero Birdman, and while it made him rich and famous, it also drained his credibility as a serious thespian. Now, in one last attempt to prove his legitimacy, he has exhausted nearly all his finances to write, direct, and star in a Broadway adaptation of Raymond Carver's short story, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. Watching Riggin fight for redemption is like watching bald eagles fight in midair. Either he'll pull it off and destroy his demons, or he'll crash trying, and the uncertainty is riveting. But even more compelling than Riggin's troubled quest is how his life is a commentary on our celebrity-obsessed and presently superhero-obsessed world. He's still haunted by the Birdman voice in his head telling him he's better than Robert Downey Jr., and he's looking for a way to prove it to anyone who'll listen. We don't get a lot of that nowadays. We don't think too deeply about why our idols are our idols, and what happens when they're last year's model. We see a smiling Chris Pratt joyriding around space and remember fondly the Instagram of his Guardians of the Galaxy body makeover. The line between actor and character is often blurred, but we're meant to admire both equally. Birdman looks at what could happen to stars 20 years after their Marvel DC franchise, and it finds both depth and humor in asking why we value such a narrow concept of artistic quality. And this is exactly what makes Riggin a hero, not because his persona saves cities, but because he manages to redeem his irredeemable true self in tiny measures. Washed up stars, they're just like us. Inyaritu, who also co-wrote the movie, films everything in long, weaving Hitchcockian takes. He's also said in interviews that he would kill himself if he had to make actual superhero action sequences. It traps you in every awkward moment, every time he talks to himself about his insecurities, every confrontation with his daughter-slash-assistant Sam, played by Emma Stone, who, like most of the movie's stars, is a super cinema vet thanks to the amazing Spider-Man flicks, every fight with his Broadway hotshot co-star Mike, a scene-stealing Edward Norton from The Incredible Hulk, and every step he takes towards total breakdown. Frankly, it's more thrilling than watching any R&D-enabled warrior or irradiated ectomorph. Deep down, we know Cape Crusaders win. Has-been actors offer fewer guarantees. But there's another question hanging over Riggin's journey. Whether his past as Birdman or his possible future as Broadway star is more authentic. In one painful confrontation, a theater critic from the New York Times reminds him that in the world of stage acting, he is just an interloper, a celebrity taking up space that could be filled by a quote-unquote real artist. But is that really the case? The struggle between art and commerce, theater and Hollywood blockbusters, is as old as capitalism, but never has it found embodiment like it does in Riggin, whose immense talent was eclipsed by fame. These days, actors jump between indie movies, theater, and giant franchises with ease, but guys like Christopher Reeve will always be remembered for their days in tights, and it's easy to forget what landed them in those leggings to begin with. Birdman is, above all, a commentary on celebrity culture, but it brilliantly manages to never take sides. It never tells you how to feel about these erstwhile heroes or their plights. It just reminds us that they're no different than us, as capable of being saviors as they are of being monsters. It also, as Grantland rightly noted, never becomes the joke it's trying to tell. Whether or not superhero flicks have artistic merit, there's no doubt that they're due for a critique. If that critique is as well played as Birdman, they've been given a fair trial. It's tough, but necessary, and the movie's layers will likely be parsed out for months. 
especially whether or not it simply stars Michael Keaton or is actually about the original movie Batman. While we're at it, it'd be nice to think that the film's almost all-white cast is a wink at the lack of diversity in superhero films, but it's hard to know for sure. By stripping away the high-flying, world-saving, and any real bad guys save for Riggins' own insecurity, Inyaritu has made a movie both comic book fans and cinephiles will love, even as they question why they do so. Birdman isn't a superhero movie. It's a heroic effort. The article Birdman is the best non-superhero superhero movie ever was written by Angela Watercutter and was originally published on Wired.com on October 24th, 2014. Finally for this week, a piece from Bo Moore that takes a look at the way social media enables a new kind of collaboration and one independent game developer who took advantage of that to create an actual enjoyable game. This is the story of iDarb. One of the weirdest, coolest, most hyped multiplayer games in years is here, and it started with a tweet. Contemplating building a game entirely with friends on Twitter slash Facebook, totally open and Mad Lib style, could be fun or totally awful. The tweet, posted by Mike Mika a little more than a year ago, was followed by another. It showed a crude red box among white and gray platforms. Where to go with this, it read. I've started a new project. It draws a red box. Thinking platformer. Hashtag help me dev. Mika is not a big name in games. He's the design director at Other Ocean Interactive, a company known largely for porting other studios' games to new platforms. So it's no surprise his cryptic tweet elicited just three responses. Then Tim Schaefer, the co-founder and creative director of indie powerhouse Double Fine, chimed in. I think the red box needs to make a critical choice, and the narrative flows from there, he tweeted to his 236,000 followers. With that, development began. Great ideas and half-baked jokes poured in. Maybe you could rent movies from the red box. Maybe instead of running or jumping on platforms, all it can do is hang slash walk on the ceilings. Add a morality system and some in-app purchases and you're done. Mika read them all, added a few, and posted another screenshot. A green box joined the red one with gravity and collision detection. He'd piqued people's interest. Suggestions poured in. Someone added the hashtag IDARB, or IDARB, to collect ideas, creating a handy acronym for It Draws a Red Box. Suddenly, surprisingly, hashtag IDARB went viral. Mika didn't know it, but he was creating more than a game. He was creating an exciting new way of developing games. It'd be easy to consider this a stunt, and in some ways it is, but Mika and Other Ocean have accomplished something almost unheard of. They've built an incredibly fun, playable game in very little time, drawing the best ideas from the people who ultimately will play it. This upends traditional game development with its big budgets, hushed development, and long lead times, and could become a new model. If we have an idea, ten minutes later we're trying it out, Mika says. It's like improv. People throw ideas at us, and we try to interpret those and incorporate them into the game in a way that doesn't compromise the integrity of the game, but adds to it. In the 13 months since Mika sent that first tweet, hashtag IDARB has become a chaotic, competitive multiplayer game that calls to mind Super Smash Bros. and Basketball if you played them while shaking cans of soda and rickrolling friends. The premise is simple. Two teams of up to four players apiece score points by shooting a ball into a goal. But the execution, a frenetic combobulation of crazy ideas that's as fun to watch as it is to play, is brilliant. This is iDarb. It's available now for the Xbox One, and it is unlike anything you've ever played. Mika didn't set out to create a great multiplayer game, let alone pioneer a new way of creating games. 
Until now, he was perhaps best known as the guy who hacked Donkey Kong so his daughter could play as Pauline. I'm still shocked that it got the reception it's gotten so far, he said. People really like the game. Awareness grew following that first tweet on January 3rd, 2014, and IDARB changed daily as Mika incorporated ideas. I thought it would be a fun, brief thing to just try to put in all the ideas and just see what would happen, he said. He tried a shooter deathmatch, an adventure platformer, something with branching morality trees. Still, it wasn't coming together. There was no shortage of ideas, and many of them were fun, but nothing that would hold your attention for more than a few minutes. Five days in, Mika had a game in which four soda cans navigated their world via an exploding soda fizz mechanic. But what should they do? Brandon Sheffield, a game designer and editor of Game of Sutra, suggested adding a ball, something players could carry and steal from each other, with a goal at each end. I love this idea, Mika responded. Gonna run with this. Mika added the mechanic and posted a vine, knowing he was onto something. The Twitterverse thought so too, the ideas became sports-centric. Bizarre versions of NHL 94, Sensible Soccer, or NBA Jam. For a time, you maneuvered the ball by shooting it, but that idea fell flat and Mika pulled it. He refocused on sports mechanics, carrying the ball, passing the ball, shooting the ball. IDARB was finally taking shape. When I dropped the ball into the game, it was a moment where I realized what the project was capable of being rather than what it was up to that point, Mika said. It felt more like a sport, and I understand sports mechanics. When we showed it to other people too, everyone, but especially non-gamers, instinctively grasped that it was a lot more than just running around and shooting each other. Chris Charla, head of Microsoft's ID at Xbox initiative, was fascinated by what was happening. He and Mika are old friends, so he asked if iDARB could be ported to the Xbox One. It didn't seem to matter that no one, least of all Mika, knew where the game was headed. Within a week, it was running on Xbox One development kits. It was a gamble, but Charla considers Mika, quote, one of the best mechanics designers in the entire industry. He wasn't worried in the slightest. Obviously, I have a lot of faith in Mike as a designer, he said, but the kinds of ideas bouncing back and forth and how fast Mike was iterating, I just knew it was going to be hilarious. Two months later, Microsoft invited iDARB to its indie showcase at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco. People loved it. At one point, the cheers coming from the iDARB booth drowned out a presentation Major Nelson, director of programming for Xbox Live, was giving in the next booth over. People were just blown away by how stupid it was, Mika said. There were so many dumb things in it. We had temporary audio that we probably shouldn't have been playing. We had weird sayings that didn't make much sense, but it was a bizarre enough mix that it attracted people to play. Everyone had ideas. Mika fed them all into a spreadsheet, tracking what it was, who suggested it, how crazy it was, and how easily it might be implemented. It was around this time that the online phenomenon Twitch Plays Pokemon reached critical mass. Thousands of Twitch viewers controlled a single game of Pokemon running on an emulator, entering commands through the streamed game's chat. A discarded Other Ocean game riffed on this concept using Twitter. Given that iDARB was essentially Twitter Plays Game Dev, it seemed fitting to extend that reach into the game itself. It allows us, as we play, to invite anyone around the world to join in and do stupid stuff to the game, Mika said. Each game gets a unique alphanumeric hashtag displayed in the corner of the screen. Spectators use this hashtag with keyword hash bombs, like hashtag reverse, hashtag freeze, or hashtag clown in tweets or Twitch chat to make wonderfully strange things happen in the game. They can turn the ball into a bomb, for example, or invert everyone's controls. They can have a crudely pixelated Rick Astley crew never gonna give you up, because who wouldn't want to do that? Like the new assist trophies and other power-ups in Super Smash Bros., hash bombs add a layer of chaos and chance to a skill-based game. More importantly, they turn spectators into participants. You aren't watching the action and awaiting your turn, you're influencing the game. Yes, you can turn off the hash bombs, but what's the fun in that? 
Hash bombs let Mika incorporate people's zaniest ideas. Once the fundamental sports dynamic was established, Mika and his crew could choose any idea that made the game more fun. And make no mistake, iDarb is, at every moment, a full frontal barrage of fun. Menus feature pumping music and characters from a universe of games. Loading screens give way to silly minigames and other spectacles. There's even a Kinect-powered kiss cam that sometimes appears between rounds, because why not? The game came together in about a year, and the version that won so many fans at GDC was built in less than eight weeks. Mika shattered any notion that creating a fun, playable game requires a big budget, a big team, and a big timeline. Not everyone was happy about that. Mika recalls a developer at GDC complaining that people ignored his, quote, absolutely gorgeous game to play something that, quote, looks like shit. Even people within Other Ocean resented seeing games they'd spent years honing falter, even fail, while this weird side project got all the love. What these people too often overlook is people love iDARB because it's so damn easy to pick up. The learning curve is essentially flat. Controls are simple. Move with a control stick, one button jumps, one button passes, pull the trigger to shoot. There's all these other controls doing other things, but all you really need to know is jump and throw, says Glenn McKnight, a developer who worked with Mika on the game. You're able to play the game with just those two buttons and probably do fine. A lot of games aren't that way. Mika attributes that simplicity to his experience with mobile games like Maze Finger and Dr. Awesome. Mobile has brought non-gamers to gaming and allowed us to play in places and at times, on the train, while waiting in a lobby somewhere, that require a low barrier to entry. Making a game easy to understand is paramount, especially given that iDARB is designed to be played with friends. Matches are quick and engaging, the game is a snap to learn, and ensures everyone, players and spectators alike, has fun. It deserves all the praise it's gotten so far. For all its crazy ideas, iDARB is incredibly refined. Core gameplay has changed very little since that GDC build nearly a year ago, allowing Mika and Other Ocean to focus intently on ensuring everything feels, looks, and plays just right. There's just one stage, a 2D vertical arena with platforms, walls, and a goal at each end. It sounds simple, and it is, but Other Ocean spent months studying heat maps of how players moved around during hundreds of games, making minor tweaks. They added platforms you can jump through, for example, after players reported frustration at bumping their heads. And they made subtle tweaks to, say, cause a player to get dizzy when another player jumps on their head. Not a lot of developers get a chance to get non-developer feedback at a point where you can still make changes, McKnight said. I worked on so many console games that by the time you got to sharing with people, you heard the ideas, you loved their ideas, but you were way past the point where you could do something about it. The two things that took Mika the longest to hammer out are the game's AI and how it handles online multiplayer. For AI, the simplest solution ended up being the best. The code is tiny and essentially says, if I don't have the ball, move toward the ball. If I've got the ball and I'm close to the goal, shoot the ball. Online multiplayer is a bit more complicated, but draws from Other Ocean's experience porting one-on-one -on -one fighting games like Mortal Kombat Arcade Collection to Xbox Live. iDARB uses a couch-versus-couch system, where one team of as many as four people, a couch, plays a locally formed team, another couch, of similar size. This simplifies network communication to minimize lag and ensures everyone is in the same room. It's a smart compromise that maintains the local multiplayer spirit of the game while allowing online matches. But for all its success here, it should be noted that crowdsourcing may not, and perhaps should not, replace conventional development methods. Much of iDARB's success can be attributed to the dev team's expertise transforming a hodgepodge of ideas into a game. Ideas are only as good as the execution. The simplicity of the game's engine was key, too. The faster an idea can be incorporated and tested, the faster you can determine whether it's worth pursuing. Not every game lends itself to this, there's no way a Halo title will ever be crowdsourced, but open development is changing how indie games are made. 
Kickstarter and Steam Early Access have shown the merits of involving a game's community from early stages of development. IDARB is a logical conclusion of the way developers and the community are getting closer and closer together, Microsoft's Chris Charla said. Obviously, a lot of games really value community management and listening to the community, and with this game, Mike was able to say, let's just take that to a logical extreme and have the community design the game. Now, a cavalcade of developers are following that lead, sharing projects on Twitter through game development hashtags like hashtag GameDev and hashtag IndieDevelopment. There's hundreds of projects being shared with the hashtags, Mika said. It's awesome to watch the dialogue between people who are following and developers talking to other developers. I think that's the future of game development. Mika and his crew at Other Ocean had a ball making IDARB and think they're onto something here. We already know it's a success, he said. It's a playable game that we enjoy. It'll go out, and the people who have supported us will probably love it. We just hope we get the chance to do it again. They don't lack for ideas. There are hundreds that didn't make it into IDARB. The standing joke is Mika will make IDARPG or IDARPG next. And come to think of it, a motley band of adventurers wandering a distant land ruled by real-time tweets would be one hell of a lot of fun. The article, How a Tweet Turned into the Best New Multiplayer Game in Years, was written by Bo Moore and was originally published on Wired.com on January 30th, 2015. With that, we've reached the end of our maiden voyage. Thank you so much for listening. Everything may still be a bit rough, but I'm looking forward to seeing this podcast evolve over time, and I hope you are too. If you can, please share this episode with as many people as you feel would enjoy it. I would really appreciate that. And lastly, while it's ultimately my goal to make this a weekly podcast, we may not be entirely there yet. I'm finishing up my last semester of college as we speak, so I ask that you please be patient with me. In the meantime, if you want to chat about the show, you can get in touch on all manner of social media. We're on Twitter, at ReadByThis. You can find our Tumblr at readbythis.tumblr.com. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash readbythis, where we will be posting episodes late, kind of a syndication type thing, and there will be more to come there as well, so stay tuned to that. And all of this is in addition to our SoundCloud, the source of the show itself, where I assume you're probably listening to this. We're working on getting, like, RSS feeds and ways for you to listen to this in other places. So, again, just bear with us as we set everything up. Thanks again for listening. This will return in the near future, reading more of the web so you don't have to. I'm your host, Mike Egan. Take care.